Back in the mid-1990s, I used to drive Highway 72 toward Fredericktown quite a bit, and I hated that drive. I lived in Bullinger County, and I would drive 72 to meet up with a friend in Fredericktown where we would carpool to Mineral Area College in Park Hills. The road is very sparse. It's a two-lane highway. In many places, there are no shoulders whatsoever. It gets very dark through there as it cuts and weaves its way through patches of forest. Sight lines are terrible. It was not a safe road to drive. I once hit a patch of ice on Highway 72 in the dead of winter, and I did a couple of unintentional donuts right there in the middle of the highway. I was probably going about 40 miles per hour or so. Had I spun off the road, I would have gone down a steep embankment that had no guardrails. Thankfully, no vehicles were coming from the other direction. It wasn't this major huge deal, but uh, it was definitely frightening. A young man named Doug Teal was found dead on this highway, just outside of Fredericktown, measured at around 1.9 miles from US 67. It was pitch dark there. There was a bit of fog. It was July 15, 2010. Doug Teal was 19 years old. Emergency responders drove up to a grisly scene. Clearly, Doug had been hit by a vehicle. No one questions that. But the primary central question of this case is this. Was Doug dead or unconscious before the car struck him? Doug's mother, Karen Langston, believes with all her heart that her son was dead before his body was crushed by the car. Karen believes her son was beaten to death and then placed in the road to make a murder look like a pedestrian versus car collision. I spent two and a half hours interviewing Karen. I've spent even more time messaging her about the case. I've made Sunshine Law requests, created a timeline, and I'm working my way through Karen's information to see what I can confirm. Her theories and information are too scandalous to publish wholly without being able to verify key points. The story she tells me hits some of the same themes as the Michelle Lawless case in Scott County. Her theory involves thugs in the drug trade or maybe even sex trafficking trade. And there are themes of corruption involved. I need more time to examine those angles. But I have been able to confirm a lot of what Karen has told me. For instance, a woman was charged for hit and run in this case. I have obtained records showing the probable cause plus charging documents. I've been able to confirm that this woman was not convicted of those charges. And Karen believes that, that was the right decision, the right outcome there. It's one little layer of this story. A story that Karen believes has many layers. Karen has quite a bit of documentation. She's talked to a lot of people. She has a lot of passion to find out exactly what happened to her son. And if this sounds familiar to you, well, it should. Karen sounds a lot like Barbara Hall. And a little bit like Erica Lotz, too. Those mothers are asking questions of mysterious deaths involving their sons, too. Their cases happen near Fredericktown, Missouri, too. They're having to do their own investigations, too. Police believe Barb's son, Timmy, just laid down and died in the woods. Police believe Karen's son, Doug, just laid down in the middle of the road to be run over. In Timmy's case, his body no longer had hair or fingernails to do a toxicology, but the assumption police are making is that Timmy died of his own accord of an overdose. That's not the case here with Doug. His toxicology came back clean, except for marijuana. 
No hard drugs or alcohol were found in his system. So here we are again. Another mother from Fredericktown rolling up her sleeves to investigate her own son's death. She's been doing it now for 13 years. I can't sit here and say that I know what happened to Doug, but it seems to me that there are two scenarios to consider from the outset. The first scenario is Karen's theory that her son was beaten to death or knocked unconscious and placed in the road to cover up a homicide. The second scenario is that Doug died the result of a suicide by car. The more I learn, this scenario doesn't seem likely at all. There's room for some other scenarios where maybe Doug was beaten and then collapsed. But the question is, what happened to Doug? Why was he lying in the road? Why did the medical examiner rule his death as the result of an accident when the evidence showed maybe something else? And why has the investigation stopped despite several people saying they witnessed Doug being beaten by a man said to have a grudge against Doug? Let's just say it's complicated. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. It was pretty active. He was oh, he was in very good shape. Um, we lived about five miles out of town and it wasn't anything for him to walk to and from town uh, if he didn't have the vehicle. After he had left Applebee's, the boy that was driving had taken him to um, his parents' home, which is on H Highway, just right outside of Fredericktown, Missouri. This ended up being more or less a setup. Okay, Doug had been threatened by people, these two bullies that lived in town over girls also. The driver of the vehicle who hit Doug obviously made some mistakes. She panicked a bit. And we're going to start off this episode by kind of going over what happened from her perspective. I'm not going to use her real name in this. She was acquitted of hit and run charges. Actually, I'm not 100% sure if charges were dropped or whether a jury found her innocent. The court records are no longer public record for the very fact that she was not convicted of the crime. Regardless, I don't need to use this woman's name. I imagine the trauma of what happened and the legal battle she faced has left her scarred enough already. I don't want to add to that unnecessarily. We will call her Christy for the purposes of this podcast, at least for now. So far, she hasn't responded to my attempts to reach out to her, but I did obtain some files through a public records request, so we kind of know what happened essentially in her own words. Christy lived on County Road 504 at the time which was just west of Fredericktown and to the north of Highway 72. Christy was driving her boyfriend to meet his carpool friend at the Walmart parking lot. From there, her boyfriend would ride up to his job in St. Louis. It was around 3.30 in the morning. It was dark, foggy. She'd made this drive a million times in her little white Pontiac G6. Her boyfriend leaned back in the passenger seat, savoring the last moments of rest before a busy workday ahead. Suddenly, under the fog, right there in the middle of the road, she sees a body in a flash, a fraction of a second. It looks like a person, a person with their head near the center line, the feet pointed toward the shoulder. It's a body, perpendicular in the right lane of Highway 72. 
Christy swerves left. The sudden movement jolts Christy's boyfriend awake. Christy's front passenger tire hits the head of the body in the roadway. The impact is felt. Christy panics. She tells her boyfriend she thinks she just hit a body, a person. But her boyfriend insisted it must have been a deer or a large dog. Unfortunately, Christy does not stop. She doesn't check. She keeps driving and then drops her boyfriend off at Walmart. She probably should not have done that. Regardless, Christy comes back. And on her way back, she sees the body in the lane. She calls her boyfriend. Her boyfriend tells her to call 911. And she does. Christy calls 911, but is routed to Iron County. Christy explains there is a body on Highway 72, but she does not explain that she is the one who hit the person. She is shaken. She's distraught. And after sunup, she would tell others what happened. Word quickly got back to the sheriff's department that Christy had hit Doug Teal. And the sheriff's department began to pursue a case against Christy for leaving the scene of an accident. I mean, it's a tough call on that one. Did she handle everything perfectly? I would say definitely not. Is she a felon for handling things the way she did? I mean, Doug's mom doesn't think so. Christy ended up confessing to police that she hit Doug in the road. The undercarriage of her car proved that. But did she kill Doug? We don't know for sure. I would say there are clear indications that she did not, which we will get into here in a minute. She told police that Doug was lying in the road, as I explained earlier. She explained that she swerved to her left, struck Doug's head with her front passenger tire. Christy's boyfriend confirmed that she swerved left. The evidence supports that Doug's head was struck. Like I said, there are a lot of reasons to think that Doug was not killed in that instant when Christy's car struck Doug's body. And the biggest reason is, I believe, found in the autopsy. The autopsy explains the injuries sustained to Doug's face, his neck, his brain. The report explains the initial external view of the body, which indicates the obvious trauma to the head. But the initial observation was that the rest of Doug's body appeared normal, at least at first. Quote, upper and lower extremities are symmetrical and well-formed. Except for evidence of injury to be described, the remainder of the external examination of the body is unremarkable. Again, the remainder of the external examination of the body is unremarkable. This assessment confirms Christy and her boyfriend's account of what happened. Christy swerved, could not avoid hitting Doug's head, and neither Christy nor her boyfriend explained that any other part of Doug's body was hit by the vehicle. Nor did the initial external examination show that any part of Doug's body was crushed by the weight of Christie's vehicle. But the autopsy, of course, doesn't stop with an initial external investigation. The medical examiner opened up Doug's body to take a look at his organs. This is what the report said, quote, Subsequent autopsy of the chest and abdomen shows a mid-sternal fracture, as well as a fracture of the posterior right first and second ribs and posterior right fifth rib. There are scattered pulmonary contusions on the right, as well as soft tissue hemorrhage in the middle mediastinum. 
There are multiple anterior liver lacerations and a laceration of the anterior left kidney. The spleen shows multiple capsular lacerations. 300 milliliters of bloody fluid found in right pleural space, 100 milliliters of bloody fluid in left pleural space, 200 milliliters of blood in peritoneal cavity. Okay, I'm gonna be honest, I don't know if I pronounced all those words correctly, <laughs> but I did look up all the words. So we have a mid-sternal fracture. That's basically a term for the line that runs down the middle of the sternum. We have three cracked ribs. We have bruised lungs and a hemorrhage in the area of the heart near the spine. We have lacerations to the liver and kidney. I'm pointing out the condition of Doug's body simply because there are things Doug's mother says that I can't prove, but there are certainly things that show support to her theories. Doug's body is one of those things. Karen has told me she was originally told by the coroner that Doug was dead before he was struck. I can't prove the coroner said that to her, but I will say this, the autopsy strongly suggests that Doug was indeed dead or perhaps unconscious. Again, just to repeat what we know, Doug was lying in the middle of the road. The driver of the vehicle swerved to the left. The passenger of the vehicle confirms the driver swerved to the left. The driver says she struck the head while trying to do so. And we have the external examination noting no obvious signs of trauma beyond the head. If the car had run over the abdomen area of Doug's body, surely there would have been obvious external signs that would have been noted in the autopsy. Having said all that, here's what the autopsy report actually stated in its conclusion. Quote, conclusion. In consideration of the circumstances surrounding the death, and after examination of the body, it is my opinion that Douglas Teal, a 19-year-old male, died as a result of multiple injuries, including cardiocerebral injuries and abdominal injuries resulting from being struck by a motor vehicle. According to information provided, the vehicle did not remain at the scene of the accident. The medical examiner, Russell Dietiker, really didn't conclude how Doug died, only from multiple injuries. He included abdominal injuries in that assessment, yet Christie did not strike Doug's abdomen. And no one else reported striking Doug's body on the highway that morning. Okay, so let's talk about what Doug was doing walking on Highway 72 west of Fredericktown at 3.30 in the morning. So Doug didn't own his own vehicle yet. He was 19. He had a job selling knives with a company called Vector. He often borrowed his mom's pickup truck, but he didn't have access to it on July 14th and 15th of that year. He spent the day with his co-workers, including his buddy George Anderson. It was a very busy day for Doug and George and some of their co-workers that day. They went to several places selling these knife kits, including to like an area restaurant, for example. That evening, they went to a work meeting. Doug was acknowledged for his recent success with sales. After the meeting, a few friends went to Applebee's where they ate and talked. It doesn't look like there was a lot of drinking at this party. Again, Doug's toxicology did not show a presence of alcohol, only marijuana. After Applebee's, Doug and George ended up at George's house around 12.30 a.m. George had been driving Doug and other Vector associates all around the mineral area all day. 
We don't know exactly what George and Doug were planning to do at George's house or whether they were planning to go somewhere, but based on witness reports I obtained through public records requests, George's sister, mother, and aunt were in the house playing cards. Apparently, George was having some sort of problem with his gas tank. And we don't have a lot of information on this, but the short of it is that George didn't think he had enough gas to get Doug home. George's family had another car that was having some sort of problem, and George asked those in the house to help him push the car under the streetlight so he could work on the car, presumably to get it running. I mean, I'm guessing here this wasn't explicitly said, but I'm guessing he was like, oh, let's try to get this car running so I can take Doug home. During the course of doing that, Doug pulled out his cell phone and called a woman he had just started seeing. He was talking to her when George and one of the other women at the home started arguing while pushing the car. You can just imagine that scenario where, you know, temperatures are rising. It's one something in the morning. You've been playing cards. Now you got to help, you know, push this car for George to get his buddy home. And while this argument was going on, Doug just said, forget it. I'll just walk home. So that's kind of the story that's kind of weaved together from several different perspectives and witness statements. The argument between George and one of the other women was overheard by Doug's new girlfriend, who was on the other end of the phone. And apparently Doug was kind of upset with George because he wouldn't drive him home. Anyway, at 1.47, Doug tells his girlfriend he's walking home. Doug lived without owning his own vehicle. His home was off Route D outside of Fredericktown to the west. And walking to and from town was not out of the ordinary for him. He did it quite often. George Anderson's house was kind of parallel to Highway 67, which runs north and south. And it was kind of on the north side of Fredericktown. At the time, Detective Rebecca McFarland noted that she and the sheriff measured the distance from Anderson's house to Doug's house to be around 4.4 miles. When I plotted the points on a Google map, Google estimated the route, at least along the roads, to be about 6 miles from Anderson's house to the Route D intersection on Highway 72, which is where, or at least close to where, Doug lived. This discrepancy is kind of a big deal for reasons I'll get into later, but based on the 6-mile Google estimate, it would have taken about two hours based on a leisurely walking pace of about 20 minutes per mile. That would have put Doug home around 345 in the morning. If the route was 4.4 miles, as suggested by the investigators, it would have taken about an hour and a half of walking at a regular pace without stopping. Regardless of the actual distance, whether six plus miles or 4.4 miles, Doug should have been home or nearly home, at the time Christy and her boyfriend met Doug's body on the highway at 345. So again, Doug takes off walking around 1.47 a.m. Doug and his girlfriend talked on the phone for several minutes while he was walking. Less than 10 minutes in, the phone call is cut off. Doug's battery is low. He can no longer talk, but he can still text. At 1.57 a.m., Doug's buddy, George, sends a text to Doug saying, quote, Hey, I'm not mad at you. I'm frustrated at my gas tank, and I got way mad, you know. Doug responded, It's okay, just bring my kit tomorrow. Unquote. He was referring to his knife kit. Doug had also left a set of clothes and his wallet in George's vehicle. 
A minute later, Doug sent his final text. It was sent to his girlfriend, explaining that his battery will last for a bit. He could still text, but couldn't talk. Around 2.40 a.m., a witness reported that she saw Doug walking on Highway 72, quote, just east, unquote, of Highway D. At 2.45 a.m., the girlfriend sent a text, are you okay? But Doug did not respond. So again, at 2.40 a.m., a witness reported seeing Doug walking on Highway 72 just east of Highway D. At 3.30 a.m., some 50 minutes later, a witness reported seeing Doug walking on Highway 72 near the trust company place called Precision Component Systems, a business that made wood trusses. So these two witness reports had me very confused. If Doug was walking home from George Anderson's, he needed to travel south parallel to 67, then make his way west on Highway 72. The first witness reported seeing Doug just east of Route D around 240. The second witness saw him near Precision Components, which is about three miles east of Route D. So what does just east mean? If you think just east of Route D is roughly a quarter of a mile, maybe, that means over an hour's time, Doug was traveling not toward home, but away from home during the time between 2.40 and 3.45. Again, that just doesn't make any sense. Either one of the witnesses was wrong, there was a mistake made in the report, or something else happened to Doug while he was out there on that highway. And again, by 3.30 in the morning, if Doug had walked straight through, he should have been home or within a mile of home by 3.30 in the morning. By 3.45, he should have been home and not more than three miles away near the trust company. Again, not much about this timeline in these witness statements makes much sense. Doug was not close to home where he was hit on Highway 72. The first call of a body on Highway 72 came in at 4 a.m. A second call came in at 4.03. The first police officer arrived at 4.06. Now we're going to bring Doug's mother, Karen Langston, into the conversation. But before we do, I want to point out that this case is nearly 13 years old, and Karen has been chasing the truth for that entire time. In this episode, we're going to try to stick to the possibility that Doug did not die from a hit and run. Over 13 years, Karen has come across perhaps hundreds of pieces of information that may or may not add up to something larger than Doug's death. I'm not ready to dive into those possibilities quite yet. There's just a lot more work to be done. But my hope here is just to familiarize listeners with the idea that there is good reason to believe that Doug didn't just take a nap on the highway. There is good reason to believe that there was foul play involved in how Doug ended up in that road. Again, the person you're about to hear from is Karen Langston, the mother of Doug Teal. pretty active he was uh, he was in very good shape um we lived about 
five miles out of town and it wasn't anything for him to walk to and from town uh, if he didn't have the vehicle. We've helped each one of our children with a vehicle and we had a, a red Chevy truck that Doug drove off and on and would share with me that we were getting ready to give to him, but he still didn't mind hiking to and from town on foot. And uh, he was very athletic and very um, uh, an artist. I mean, this young man could sit down and draw anything and he was very good at art, uh, school, basic grades. I mean, yeah. So how old was he at this time? He was 19 years old and uh, he had started a job with a company, a vector company selling knives for Cutco. And uh, he really enjoyed that. Um, matter of fact, he was doing very well at selling these knives. Uh, and he would set up a, he would time in between. He, um, he might have like two hours in between before the next appointment or whatever. But he was doing very well at selling these knives and uh, um, just really at a highlight of his life. He really was in um, a fantastic point of life. And I was so nowhere. By was he uh, at this point, had he graduated from high school? No, he didn't. He actually he had signed back up for school because he had a mishap in 11th grade at the end of 11th grade. My children didn't know that there was an age that you could drop out of school, and I would have just as soon left it at that. But he had a, a minor mishap and ended up in the office. And believe it or not, the principal had suggested to him that if he didn't like things, that he should quit school. And Doug said, I would if I could. And the principal informed him he could have quit last year. And Doug walked out the door and quit school at the end of 11th grade. But he was at this point, he was signed back up into school. He was working for selling these knives and he was doing um, a correspondence course on his artwork and becoming really good at art. And uh, that's what I mean. He was just he couldn't have been happier. Signed back up in school, you know, had a job, had the correspondence course almost finished and had a job lined up afterwards to do some artwork. He was going to be going to Arizona and um, uh, a guy had a job artwork so he was really i mean hyped up and at a good point in his life and this selling the knives they would um this company gave great recognition to their employees when they did a good job and doug had received um this was the night before he was killed uh he had they had a party and it was all for doug and they had given him a trophy and um a certificate of a training certificate because they had never seen or had anybody that sold that many sets of knives in that short period of time. And they um, decided to make him a, an instructor trainee. And he was, I mean, they gave him a trophy, they gave him a pin. Um, they had went over to Applebee's and bought dinner and um, just a celebration for Doug. After he had left Applebee's, the boy that was driving had taken him to um, his parents' home, which is on H Highway, just right outside of Fredericktown, Missouri. Fredericktown was our hometown, and I've lived there about 40 years, and 
had moved there from high school and was going to raise my family there, thinking I was bettering myself by have given them a country life instead of the city life. And uh, so um, he had, uh, this young man had been the driver that evening and he, H Highway is right before you get to the Fredericktown exit. And he had told Doug that he didn't have the gas to give him a ride home. And Doug kind of got aggravated because he had bought the young man gas several times that day. And so he just took off walking and he was texting somebody on the phone while he was walking. And uh, um, the young man who didn't give him a ride home, they were old friends. And I had no idea that they were friends again because I had ran him off from my home. Um, I don't judge a book by its cover, but this young man had taken an item that belonged to my daughter-in-law. And when I found out, I told Doug I didn't want him around there anymore. So Doug stopped hanging around him altogether. But this job selling these knives is kind of like a pyramid. And the more people you get brought in under you, the higher you go and the more money you make. So apparently... Doug had come in contact with this young man again, and he uh, got a job for him. He had just started working there like the night before, matter of fact. And um, so he was working there. But uh, I had no idea that they were even in contact again until actually, um, Doug, I had gotten the information that Doug was killed. All right. So I'm going to pause you there for just a moment because this this already sounds a little weird to me. Um you got a, you got this buddy and he's he says he doesn't have he's been driving around and he says he doesn't have enough gas. Uh I mean how many miles are we talking about here? It was probably a good four mile walk home. I'm okay. just guessing. I mean, I'm not very good at judging that, but H Highway is just probably about almost a mile outside of Fredericktown and then um we lived about at the Fredericktown exit, we lived probably about three to four miles west towards arcadia we didn't live in Fredericktown. we lived outside of it about five miles yeah but even so you know if a, but, if, if a vehicle gets 15 miles a gallon you, you know it only takes a gallon or two to i don't know like well friend, i don't think a friend out. normally would do that you know it's just what i'm saying what's sad is i found out later that um he um had been locked up in the Fredericktown jail for a while because he had got caught stealing some items and while he was in jail, he had asked Doug to kind of keep an eye out on his girlfriend. And um, Doug would walk her to and from work just for safety purposes. And uh, by the time this friend got out of jail, which was a month or two later, uh, Doug and this girl had become an item. They were boyfriend-girlfriend, which upset his friend, I'm sure. But nothing was really, um, there was no fight or really any issue made out of it. But uh this ended up being more or less a setup. Okay, Doug had been threatened by people, these two bullies that lived in town over girls also. This particular night, apparently, this young man, he was in contact. I don't even know how to word this, Bob, I'm sorry. Okay. He was in contact with the bullies and the bullies were pretty fed up with Doug and these girls. Now, anytime these bullies had a girlfriend, um, you were their girl. You were locked into them for life, even if you weren't still dating them. Very strange. But and so it began with the oldest one threatening Doug, telling Doug, you know, you stay away from this girl. And 
Doug went to school with this girl and um, this bully was 10 years older. I mean, this friend of Doug's was his age. They had, you know, classes together and stuff. And, and it really didn't scare Doug off. He just kind of ignored the guy and he had threatened him several times and told him to stay away from her. Doug had said, we're just friends. And he said, I don't care. You know, um, you, I don't want you to even be friends. You stay away from her. Well, it didn't can you, scare can Doug. Can you tell no. us he, just real, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, sometimes I have to interrupt because I have these, that's fine. That's these fine. questions. Can you just tell us just real quickly how you, how you came about some of this information that you're talking about? Like the, the interactions between uh, Doug and these, these bullies, uh, did, did other people tell you about this? Did Doug tell you about this when he was still living or? Well, Doug had told his brothers, um, we lived outside of town and we like to have bonfires and stuff. And they were sitting around the fire and Doug had told his brother being threatened by these guys. And, um, the house that we lived in had a house like right next door to it. Uh, the old country houses and back in the day, it was probably family related, but, um, the people that lived right there in the next house happened to be these bullies aunt and uncle. Okay. And we only met the one, the younger one, actually, who would come over. He would do stuff with the family, um, fireworks, whatever we had going. He, you know, had joined in, but we had never met the older one who had threatened Doug. And um, I had asked, they had one son and it's my youngest son's age. Uh, they're 26 now, but they were 13 at the time. And I had asked him when I found out about Doug's death, how come I knew the one, but I had never met the older one. And he said, well, my parents don't allow him to come around here because of things that he does to people, which at 13, I wasn't going to say you mean kill people, but I just kind of left that part to myself. So you got this information from family members and family members of these bullies. Some just some of this information just kind of comes your way. Yes, sir. See, I didn't even know that Doug had been being threatened by this older bully, and I I would have tried to do something about it at the time. And um, he didn't really seem to make a move. The older the older bully didn't seem to really to uh, to take it any further. You know, like back in the day when somebody would threat you, threaten you, it would just be a threat. I mean, now you have to very cautiously be careful because if they say I'm going to kill you, um, that's pretty much what's on their mind. It does seem um, like, it does seem that way to Frederick Town these days. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So the second, the younger brother of the two, okay, the oldest one, like I said, he's the one that would threaten Doug and everything, but it really didn't seem to go anywhere. And like I said, it didn't keep Doug from hanging around the girl. And the younger brother he wasn't as uh he wasn't in as much trouble as the older brother now i would like to say both of them had a file thick enough to put both of them away in prison probably for life but they always seemed to get by with no matter what they did they got they walked free and nobody really could understand that and uh i couldn't either i mean these bullies apparently have been bullies in this town since they were born. I don't, I don't know, but I do know that they're brothers 
and that uh, they hang around. Of course, what makes them a bully is they hang around a younger crowd, and these these people are scared of them. Within 10 minutes of walking, Doug's call is disconnected, and he begins texting. He says it's because his battery has gone low. But Karen believes there may be more to this. She believes perhaps that Doug's attackers picked him up and took his phone and began responding to the texts. The last anyone heard Doug's voice was 1.57, 10 minutes after he left George Anderson's house. In those 10 minutes, Doug could have walked between a half and three quarters of a mile or so. Doug had made the walk into town many times before. He was in great shape. Should have taken between an hour and a half and two hours to arrive home. No one hears from or sees Doug from 1.57 to 2.40 a.m. when he's seen by a passerby. That's about 45 minutes or so. And then no one sees or hears from Doug from 2.40 a.m. to 3.30 a.m. or 50 minutes when he's seen by another motorist. But it appears Doug is heading away from home, not toward home. Two hours after Doug left George Anderson's house, when he should be home, he's struck by Christie's car, but the collision on the highway took place nearly three miles from home. He was lying in the road when he was hit. He was not walking. He was not moving. Only his head was struck, but Doug's body had sustained three broken ribs, a cracked sternum, and internal bleeding that very well could have caused his death, and by something other than a car. Hours after the incident, we have four reports marked as leads in the investigative files by the Madison County detective that people were talking. We had reports of a dispute between Doug and a person Doug's mom refers to as a bully. So this is where we're going to end this episode, but we're going to pick up on another episode soon on this case. This is a plea for anyone with information about Doug Teal's death to reach out to us through our tip form on our website, www.thelawlessfiles.com, or find us on Facebook and send us a message. We have a Lawless Files Facebook page and a Lawless Files group. The page is open to everyone, but we share more in the group, which requires you to answer a few questions before we let you in. Oh, but one more thing first. We built much of this episode from documents obtained through a public records request. Madison County originally declined to give up the documents, saying that the prosecutor had determined the case was still open. The Lawless Files then responded with a provision in the Sunshine Law that states that any case is considered inactive if it is more than 10 years old. So the Sheriff's Department sent us a report. But here's the thing. We know that the department excluded certain files. We know that other files exist that were not included in the response. This includes interview reports and also recordings. Furthermore, the report only contains investigative information through July 20th of 2010, which is only five days after Doug's death. Sheriff Katie McCutcheon, in one response to our Sunshine Law request, said the prosecutor claimed the case was open and therefore records not available for public inspection because Every so often, Karen would come forward with information that was looked at and deemed unsubstantiated. So it seems like what the sheriff was saying is that the case was 
open only because the victim's mother was still investigating. It seemed like Madison County was using Karen as a reason to try to keep these documents closed. But the sheriff's response sparks another question. If the case was considered active because Karen was providing information, why were those reports and the sheriff's reports in relation to that information not included in our Sunshine request? The response to our Sunshine request did not include records we know to exist because Karen has copies of some of these reports. We have sent another response to the Sheriff's Department asking them to review the case file and send us all investigative files associated with Doug's death. We'll see where that goes. If Doug Teal was killed before his body was struck by that car, if Durante Martin was executed in the attic of a known racist, if Timmy Dees didn't lay down and die in the woods of his own accord, then that means there are brutal killers running the back roads in Madison County knowing they've gotten away with murder. Karen Langston, Erica Lotz, and Barb Hall aren't just seeking justice for their son's killers. They're trying to get murderers off the streets. They're trying to make sure this doesn't happen to someone else's son or daughter. I'm your host, Bob Miller. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. The Lawless Files is a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. It is written and produced by yours truly, Bob Miller. Music by Tyler Grafe. I hope you can tell that The Lawless Files puts a lot of time and effort into each episode. Unlike other podcasts that may just regurgitate information that's been published elsewhere, we dig here at The Lawless Files. We spend hours interviewing people, we do public records requests, and then we record, edit, and publish. It's all a lot of work and we need your help. We cannot continue this work without your help. Please go to www.thelawlessfiles.com and purchase an access pass for $36. And please share The Lawless Files with your friends on social media. Next time on The Lawless Files. And there were so many people there. I mean, the next morning, the police station was packed with witnesses. And every one of them, we were told, was hearsay. Or the ones that pursued it, that wanted to prove it wasn't hearsay, were threatened. Um, And their stories never, anybody that filled out a statement, it it never made it to the prosecutor's office. It never made it past the sheriff's office. They were just like. So have people told you that they saw Doug that night getting the crap knocked out of him? Yes. people, People have told you that, that they saw that happen. Right. I mean, there are even people that would still come forth, but there's no reason for them to. There is nobody that to tell that won't make yeah. them wind up dead.